Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. It is Tuesday, and we're really glad you're here for the Three Martini Lunch. Your stool is ready, and boy, do we have a nice surprise for you today. Three good martinis. We are way below where we should be in our total for good martinis for the year. But we're not just doing it because we're behind, Jim. We're doing it because we actually have three really good stories today. And that doesn't happen very often. So we're going to make the most of it while we have that chance. That doesn't mean there's not still plenty of uh, bad and crazy news out there. And I'm sure we'll get to that soon enough. But uh, we've uh, had a scarcity of good news. And so let's get right to it. Let's start with the freedom of speech. Boy, lately, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of that. Uh, a lot of people getting canceled for inappropriate things or supposedly inappropriate things that they say or believe or whatever. But now when it comes to political speech with your wallet, uh, you've got some more freedom. The IRS has recently decided to amend its nonprofit donor reporting rules to protect the identities of contributors. Uh, this is from The Dispatch, uh, written by Ryan Morrison from the Institute for Free Speech, who I must say is a buddy of mine. Uh, from now on, nonprofits, except for 501c3 charities and 527 political groups, are not required to disclose their largest donors on annual tax returns. The organizations must still maintain this information for a potential audit, but the IRS will stop routinely collecting these names. Uh, they go on to say, after all, an individual's freedom to speak, to worship, and to petition the government for the redress of grievances cannot be vigorously protected from state interference unless the freedom to engage in a group effort to promote these interests is also guaranteed. And Jim, we know this is not just theoretical because we've seen what happens here. You go back to the 2012 campaign and the lead up to that, a lot of conservative groups in the midst of the Tea Party were trying to get nonprofit status. The IRS were slow walking them, demanding all sorts of things that they shouldn't have been demanding, uh, basically to make sure that these people couldn't be active participants in the campaign. And then even after that, they found out that the donor lists from these groups were actually not only not being kept private, they're actually being sent out to rival organizations on the opposite side of the issue. And so as, as this column in the dispatch points out, we've seen people uh, you know, harassed and, and forced out of the public square and just made their lives miserable because of donations that they've made. I know it's a big fight between the right and the left when you go back to the Citizens United decisions about whether money equals speech, but uh, the Supreme Court has ruled that it does. And so this is a good move. Fewer people hopefully getting harassed as we head into a new campaign here. In a culture where we have woke targeting of people for holding the wrong viewpoints and having the wrong attitude, you know, the, the wrong stances on issues and the idea of the personalization of our political fights, something like donor anonymity suddenly becomes a lot more important. I think one of the best examples I ever came across this, you know, listeners know that I usually cover the Koch uh, Seminar Network's winter meeting. And back when uh, Kamala Harris was the Attorney General for California, she suddenly really, really wanted to know who their donors were for Americans for Prosperity. As far as she was concerned, this was really, really important, not because she wanted to target them, she insisted, but because it was necessary to um, track improper loans and unfair business practices by nonprofits. <laughs> of course, they, she fought for this, they fought back. Uh, and then, of course, eventually she lost this in court. And uh, the judge pointed out the attorney general's current approach is confidentially, obviously, and profoundly risk disclosure. 
Now, basically, the short version is that almost everybody could see what was happening here, the sense that, like, Kamala Harris would not officially release all the names of these donors, but it might accidentally leak from her office, and then all of a sudden you have this. We saw this from um, Julian Castro's twin brother, the congressman who released the names of Trump donors in his district. Once this starts happening, all of a sudden, you know, because you can make an argument of, hey, you know, if you're even remotely involved in politics or public policy, even if you're a nonprofit, people have a right to know who's supporting these things. And maybe in a nicer political culture, we'd be okay with that. But in one in which this, this call out culture, this idea of people should be, that there is no right to anonymously support something um, and that people who hold the wrong views should be punished, that they should be exposed, right? This, um, I, I almost feel like saying, Greg, that right now no one expects the Spanish Inquisition. Really? Uh, you know, <laughs> This, this meant, you know, in, in this kind of a culture, then you need donor anonymity. Then you need the ability to support a, uh, the causes and stance that you want without having to have your name attached to it. You know, the, the folks on the left have created this world. This is a necessary counterstep. Um, and it's, you know, it's unfortunate, but this is, you know, because maybe in a better way we would have more widespread donation. Now, of course, you still have to disclose donations to political campaigns and non-nonprofit efforts and things like that. But uh, Again, this is a natural, almost like this is like the antibodies of a system kicking in uh, to make sure that the, you know, there's a still continued free expression and free exchange of ideas. Yeah, two things come to mind uh, in addition to that. Uh, first of all, the IRS changed the rule now, obviously, with a different commissioner and different folks in charge. They could theoretically change it back if there's a new administration. Uh, and also, as you mentioned, with uh, Kamala Harris testing this in court, Jim, uh, you know, a lot of folks say, well, yeah, Trump got his judges, but uh, what else? Uh, and while there are a lot of other things that conservatives and others could probably point to, the judges really matter because uh, particularly if, uh, if the Democrats do really well this year, uh, some of those uh, judges might be the last line of defense for people's basic constitutional rights. All right. Well, let's talk about our that second- was a good martini, everybody. <laughs> yeah, well. The grim aftertaste of the good martini. <laughs> Safeguards are in place for the present and hopefully the future here, but we'll see how that goes. Jim, let's go on to our second good martini now, and this is more unexpectedly good news for the economy. Uh, coming into today, economic analysts expected retail sales in May to increase somewhere from 7 to 8%. After all, they had dropped 14.7% in April, and so 7 to 8% growth in May was the expectation way better, just like the jobs numbers in May. CNBC. Stocks rose on Tuesday as a record jump in retail sales, coupled with positive trial results from a potential coronavirus treatment and hopes of more stimulus sent market sentiment soaring. In addition to that, there's also some increased optimism that there might actually be something accomplished this year on infrastructure, believe it or not. The Trump administration reportedly drawing up a $1 trillion infrastructure proposal. The Dow Jones Industrial Average traded about 500 points higher. The S&P 500 was up nearly 2%, while the NASDAQ climbed about 1.6%. The U.S. government reported a record 17.7% increase in retail sales for May. Economists polled by Dow Jones again expected a gain of 7.7%. President Trump going all caps on Twitter today to the strong data saying, quote, looks like a big day for the stock market and jobs. So, Jim, uh, I think we've got a, a long way to go here. But once again, the American economy knows how to fight back. And both in terms of hires and in terms of retail sales shows that not only are more people working now than they were a month ago, but people are ready to spend more again. 
Yeah, that, that's one of the big stories, which is pent up demand um, for a good chunk of probably late March and into April and a really good chunk of May. Americans didn't have a lot of places they could spend money. Um, you might hear some rattling, uh, Greg. That's the sound of my new helicopter being delivered. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. I'm not, you know, obviously that's, you know, it's every time you hear us discussing ads, the revenue is not that great, listeners. Um, but anyway, the, uh, you have a situation in which people now can go out, stores are open, and people are going out and doing so. And this is, you'd like to think that as people start buying retail sales, you're going to start seeing, you know, an increase of people hiring again. Today's morning jolt I talked about, in addition to the fact that there's a great deal of violence over in American cities over the last weekend, not related to the protests. A lot of shootings, some of them at bars, some of them at parties. Uh, as usual, you know, the combination of alcohol and firearms is better in a government agency than in a single human being. And, um, you know, that this was, you know, it was pretty ugly. The numbers were pretty grim last weekend. And some of that I kind of wonder, like, okay, so the unemployment rate's 13.3%. Uh, schools have been canceled since March. Uh, summer programs are closed. Summer jobs programs have been shut down. I mean, pools are closed. You know, you don't give anybody any outlet. There's a possibility there's going to end up with violence. Well, maybe retail stores will start hiring again with these, uh, these numbers. I was just thinking about, Greg, how many people, how many young people, whether it's high school, whether they're back from college for summer break, that summer job is, is a key step in their step to adulthood and res being responsible. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, being a lifeguard or, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, you're, you're working as summer camp counselors, all kinds of summer jobs that young people usually use as their first step into the adult economy aren't there this summer. And you got to wonder how many social problems are going to be exacerbated by that and how many people are going to have a little bit of a disadvantage starting their careers because they didn't get to have that kind of experience. So um, just an observation there. Any good news in the economic front is definitely welcome. And this was a pretty good one. It indicates, you know, that there's um, people are ready to spend and this might be good for, uh, you know, production and uh, all kinds of others. Uh, you know, there'll be after effects reverberating for the next couple of months. And as I mentioned in the story there, Jim, there's also good news that's driving the markets up on the coronavirus treatment front. And of course, it can't be a drug as simple to pronounce as Lipitor or something. Uh, it's, uh, it's called dexamethasone because remdesivir uh, apparently can't do it all alone. Dexamethasone, a widely available drug, can help critically ill coronavirus patients. The treatment reportedly reduced COVID-19 deaths in hospitalized patients by up to one third. Apparently, it's a steroid treatment. So... I don't know. If we go back to the old Major League Baseball rules of the late 90s, then restart Major League Baseball and nobody's going to have a COVID problem, I guess. Yeah, it sounds really good. I, I, actually, I looked it up while you were discussing it. It's actually, it, it, despite the way it's spelled, it's actually pronounced Dexy's Midnight Runners. <laughs> come on, right Eileen, now, really? Right, I was about to say, right now my <laughs> listener Eileen is like, come on. <laughs> Oh, man. So that's excellent news. So we'll see what other numbers are going to come along this month. Uh, just great numbers so far, but a long way to go. Lots of jobs lost, 40 million jobs lost over the last three months. So a lot of ground to cover here as we recover. Let's move on to our third good martini now, Jim. And yesterday we were hammering New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio. We're still going to hammer New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio today because we already had two things we were crushing him for yesterday, his own personal response to not feeling well and not getting tested for coronavirus and not asking anyone if they've been to a protest uh, if they have tested positive for coronavirus. But uh, just as we were wrapping up yesterday, uh, folks, I don't know if it was the PD or who it was in New York, but they were literally welding shut the gates to playgrounds 
in the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn, which is a highly uh, populated Jewish community. And this is just the latest example of de Blasio making restrictions and strictly enforcing restrictions on the Jewish community that doesn't seem to be in place for anyone else, because obviously the protesters are are free to walk through, they're free to protest, they're free to gather very closely together. You got folks in Williamsburg saying, we see the protesters walk through shoulder to shoulder and no one says anything about it. So what's the good martini here? Well, folks have had enough of this. Uh, this is NY1. And uh, they have pointed out that uh, a group of local officials and Jewish leaders literally took the bolt cutters and uh, other mechanisms to open playgrounds. One was the Colbert Playground in Midwood. And there's a New York City councilman named Coleman Yeager who says, look, first of all, it's summer and kids need to play. Secondly, if you're going to have restrictions, they need to be the same for everyone. There has to be one standard for the entire city. It cannot be the case that parks are open in some neighborhoods, parks are locked in our neighborhoods. And if it was truly, truly the case that for public safety, for public health, parks had to be closed, then let all the parks be closed. And if it's not the case, then let all the parks be open. But enough is enough. The hypocrisy has to end. And they also busted into a locked up playground called the Middletown Playground also in Williamsburg. So, uh, Jim, the double standard in New York is maddening. So good for these people for showing the hypocrisy. Yeah. And look, you know, there's, there's, if there's anything, if there's any message, I just want to like grab elected officials and shake them. I probably shouldn't do that. Although I don't know, maybe de Blasio security details, not feeling all that motivated these days, um, <laughs> is that when you make a decision, there are consequences, right? Um, the, the New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio tried to enact probably some of the most strict and sweeping restrictions on citizens' ability to go out and live their lives during the, during the pandemic. And that was probably necessary. New York City got hit harder than any place else. You could, I, I continue to believe most people want to do the right thing. They want to stop the spread. They want to prevent this. They don't want anybody else to get sick. But, you, you know, they have to also know that their leaders understand that they're being asked to make uh, some really significant sacrifices. It's not just, oh, I can't get a haircut, as some snotty people have tried to characterize this. They're losing their jobs. They're having their business shut down. They're losing their life savings. We also have spectacularly fast those aid programs work, although maybe there's some argument work better than we thought in some places. But this is a, you know, you're asking, you're asking every set of parents in, in the city to, to educate their kids from home. Um, you know, you, you've asked people to do something completely unprecedented in American life. And in response to that, a little bit of empathy would be helpful and the ability to reopen things as you can. Now, of course, all across the country, there are places where, you know, at least down here in Virginia, playgrounds are open again. Now, is it too early? Is it too late? Look, they've made that decision. We know kids are at the lowest risk of uh, coronavirus compared to the elderly and other groups. Kids are much less likely to have, um, you know, those, those other factors at work. I know there's some cases of kids who do, you know, who have that. It, it, it's not, there's not zero risk. But at some point, you need to allow people to live their lives, at least in some way. And Bill de Blasio, there's like, in addition to all of his other um, flaws, he, he almost never seems to make any of those good faith efforts. He seems to relish his conflicts with the Orthodox Jewish community. I don't quite, you know, some people are gonna say it's simple anti-Semitism. Maybe it's the fact that he's always been a fan of the Soviet Union. And these are old Soviet habits. I don't know what's, what's at work there. But I, I think the simplest answer is that he doesn't fear crossing the Orthodox Jewish community. And as a result of that, he thinks he can basically uh, hammer them as much as he likes without any serious political co consequence. This is, you know, this is somewhat refreshing because the welding of the gates 
look, over in China, they were welding the doors shut of the infected, right? That, that was something, there's something inherently authoritarian about those sorts of things. I think it's time, particularly as I mentioned, that violence we saw over the past weekend, Greg, it's time to put the basketball hoops back up. Back up. It's time to get people back onto the field, to the parks. Fresh air looks good for people. As mentioned, so far we, you know, haven't seen a huge breakout that we can uh, tie directly to these protests. Although Bill de Blasio's city hall doesn't want to know if you've been to a protest, so it's kind of tough to tell. But in other cities, we haven't seen it. Um, it looks like the overall cases in New York City are going down. You know, Robert George made the observation that as soon as you started seeing big protests down in downtown New York City, you should lift all of them. And this is when I began this by saying I want to talk about you. You need to accept the consequences of your actions. If you allow large protests to gather together in crowds in violation of existing social distancing rules, everyone will conclude the social distancing rules don't matter anymore. Now, maybe de Blasio didn't want to send that message. Maybe there still is some risk of people gathering it. But once you say, because I fear the political consequences of say, telling these protesters, you can't do this. So I'm going to let this big group of young people of all kinds, you know, a lot of African-Americans, but lots of uh, Hispanics and, and whites and Asians and all kinds of other groups too, that they say, you know what, you guys are going to gather in this, it's okay. Well, then you'd better reopen the rest of society because everybody else is going to say, wait a minute, if they can do it, why can't I? And you'll see more acts like this. So look, the, the, gov the, the mayor is no longer in charge of the city. People are going to start making their own decisions. And I think we're probably better off for that but that's a consequence of the decision he made to march with the protesters instead of saying, hey guys, this is, in violating, this is in violation of the rules that I set forth. I cannot march with you. And in fact, I don't think you guys should be marching because you could be spreading the virus. You know, he's up for re-election next year. So do you think anyone's like actually gonna bother to run against him in a competent way? Or are we stuck with this for at least four more years in New York? I was gonna say like, you know, if, I, I remember when Bloomberg, his predecessor, said that you couldn't dance in bars unless the place had a license for it. And I was like, Greg, this is Footloose. This is where we need Kevin Bacon to come along and say, you're trying to ban dancing. You know, go around dancing. and But New Yorkers took it. New Yorkers were fine with it. New Yorkers were like, yes, we need this pint-sized Napoleon to save us from unlicensed dancing. And the, something in the character of New York City had changed. The New York City that, you know, I grew up about 30 miles from it, you know, New York City of the 80s and 90s wasn't going to, you know, let you say, no, no, you can't do this. There was this, you know, in your face, nobody tells me what I'm going to do. This is a tough town. We do things the way we want to do them, you know. That appears to be gone from the city. And uh, we'll see if there's any pushback against this. I would certainly say that you think that even any moderately competent, you could be a moderately competent liberal progressive Democrat. And you could say, hey, New Yorkers. I'm going to have all the viewpoints you like, and I'm not going to be a, a stumbling cluster, you know what, the way that Blasio is. Um, but we'll see if that happens in the, in the coming year, Greg. Yeah, or if it's enough to actually beat him. But uh, Jim, I was watching this report on, on NY1, and I'm like, I, the anchor, I've seen that anchor before. It's a guy named Pat Kiernan, uh, who was the host of, I don't know if how many folks remember this, do you remember the World Series of Pop Culture on VH1 back in the 2000s where friends would get together and, uh, you know, compete against other teams based on their knowledge of TV, movies and, and music and so forth? Because back in 2005, I was actually pretty good at it. Now with the stuff that the kids listen to and watch today, <laughs> I'd be completely lost. Yeah. Yeah. Our, our information is dated. <laughs> by the way, at some point, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, we have, by the way, listeners, I have not rehearsed this at all. I'm going to throw an idea at Greg. Completely unexpected, and you can, you know. See. So we could have good news or bad news on, on Thursday. It's going to be the last day I'm going to tape it for before vacation. If the news really stinks that day, I think we should just do the three martinis assessing Die Hard 2, 3, and 4. 
in honor of the DDoS attack that was yesterday that reminded us of Die Hard 4. I think we should forget the news and just talk about what sequels worked and what didn't, because obviously, as we all know, there was no fifth Die Hard movie. No, not at all. And we talk about the first one all the time. So, Jim, I think you've set the stage now for no matter what the news is on Thursday. <laughs> now, now watch be... it look like a cure for coronavirus. <laughs> well, I guess we have to talk about that. And now our listeners are either going to be thrilled or uh, absolutely deflated if we don't like, end up talking about some that. Some people say, wait, wasn't this used to be a political podcast? <laughs> There's politics involved. Chester yeah. Arthur's features very prominently in the dialogue. There you group. go. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyway, Jim, enjoy the day. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Do not forget to subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Please leave us a kind review with five stars. Also, get us on those home devices. Just say, play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. And join us on Wednesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.